David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. He who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray. God, who shall ascend the hill of yours? Who shall ascend your hill? Lord, we know it is he who has clean hands and a pure heart. Help us to see what you desire out of us and let us be encouraged by it. Help us to want it. I know that my own flesh and my own sin does not want this text. So I ask by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help me to desire it. Help me to be like the blessed man that Jesus Christ talks about who desires and is satisfied in righteousness. Help me to be like that man. But Lord, I ask that you would also show us how discouraging this text can be. I ask that you would impress on us the reality that we do not live up to this text. That oftentimes this man who is described ascending to the hill, we do not quite follow and we do not quite fit in. Rather, we come short. But by showing us our inadequacies and our sin, would you lead us to the one it's talking about? The one who is going to ascend the hill. The one who is going to enter your gates, who the gates even have to look up to. God, I pray that like the gates in this text, we would look up to you, we would see your glory, and you would be magnified in this time. Lord, we love and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. I want to observe something before we get into our text, and that's this. I think when we observe excellence, or we observe someone who is excellent, or observe someone who is doing something in an excellent manner, we really respond in one of two ways. And the ways that I think we respond is oftentimes we are encouraged by their excellence, by seeing what they do well. And in encouragement, we want to emulate, we want to reflect, we want to do the things that they do. Or sometimes we respond in the opposite way, which is discouragement. Sometimes we will see someone who does something so well and we will think, I could never do that. We will see someone who is so righteous and we will think, oh, I could never be like that. And I think that's how oftentimes we respond to excellence. Let me give you an example. In the world of sports, we can look at lots of different athletes. Let's just think of a few. Let's think of Tom Brady, a great football player, maybe the greatest of football players. We could think of LeBron James. And if you're not a LeBron James fan and you're from a past generation, Michael Jordan. There you go. So Michael Jordan or LeBron James. Or Serena Williams. 
Many children will grow up watching these athletes, as I did. I watched these athletes, and I've watched them for most of my life. And as I grew up, do you think I watched them and I just thought, oh, man, they're so good, and I can never be like that, boo-hoo? No. Many a times, and that's true, I can't be like that, but we'll talk about that in a second. Many a times I would see them, and I'd be like, I want to be like that. I want to throw a football like that. For me, it wasn't Tom Brady. It was Donovan McNabb from the Philadelphia Eagles. I remember as a child, I saw him, and I was like, I want to be like that guy. I want to play football like that. For some of you watching basketball stars, you might think, I want to be like that. Because excellence has a way of drawing you to it. When someone does something really excellent or someone does something really well, you want to come towards it. However, though, as I mentioned, sometimes it can discourage us. Because let's be honest, If any of us, and I know especially myself, ever went toe-to-toe, face-to-face with LeBron James, Tom Brady, Serena Williams, it wouldn't be very encouraging, would it? No. It would actually probably be very discouraging because we would find out that we ourselves are not so excellent, are we? Today's text doesn't want to deal with athletics. It doesn't want to deal with excellence according to the world, but rather what it wants to do with is it wants to deal with excellence according to God's standard of righteousness. It wants to deal with excellence according to what is truly right and wrong. It wants to deal with God's morality. And what this excellence is going to really do for us, I think, and hopefully what it will do for you this morning, is it will, one, encourage you. For those of you in here who are Christians, who have the Spirit of God, who know Jesus Christ, it should encourage you. It should push you closer to righteousness. It should push you to follow God. But in another sense, and maybe if you're a Christian, and maybe even if you're not a Christian, this will discourage you. And rightfully so. We are going to examine the most excellent person who ever existed. And when we put ourselves next to this person, we see we do not quite match up. But what I'm going to contend at the end of this is you should not walk away discouraged from seeing this excellence. This excellence, even though it discourages you, is really a blessing. And so we will see that blessing through the text as we analyze it. But before we get to this excellence, Psalms, um, or the writer of the Psalm, David, in Psalm 24, he wants to set the plot for this man who is going to be excellent. He wants to set the scene for how this person who is excellent is going to appear. And this begins in verses 1 through 2. So if you look at the text with me, David begins by looking at the world. Verse 1 begins this. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell there, and and just by the way, if you're wondering why I'm saying Yahweh, for those of you who haven't been with me for long enough, that is just what whenever we see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Hebrew means. It's just his name. Um, I'm sorry if you don't like it or not a big fan of it. It's just the way I do it. Make it a little bit more personal. You don't have to do it. That's just how I do it. But anyways, the text begins by talking about Yahweh, and it talks about how the earth and all its fullness thereof are the Lord's. What the text wants you to know initially is that God owns everything. And by that little addition to the world and the, that says the fullness thereof, it's talking about everything in the world is his. From the grass we see outside to rocks around us, from trees we can see around us, from the sky above us to rivers to oceans to mountains to volcanoes, everything, everything in this building that we see, every inanimate object is his. 
He is the owner of it all. But it's not just that he owns all the inanimate objects. It's not just that he just owns raw materials. No, he is also the owner of every single person that inhabits the earth. Look at that second part of verse, two, verse one. The world and those who dwell therein. The psalmist wants you to get that every living being, everything that has life in it is God's. From a gnat to a fly, to a bird, to a rodent, to a raccoon, to a deer, to a bear, to a human being. You take it all the way through everything that has life is the Lord's. And it's as if in verse 1, God just wants to say, it's all mine. At this point, when I was meditating on this, I thought about quoting one of my favorite theologians. But I thought quoting Ellis would actually probably do better at this point. Ellis, as many of you know, um, she's in her toddler stage, and many of you have probably seen this in the toddler stage. Everything is theirs. She loves to say it's mine, whether it's my toy, my cup, my food, my clothes, my baby, my mom, my dad, my car, my house, whatever it is, it's mine. That's what she says, right? And she thinks it really is all hers. Everything's mine. It's as if God is doing the same thing. It's as if God is saying, just like else, it's all mine. Everything. Every single thing that's created, every single being, I own it, regardless of what they believe. And this is even important for Christians to understand. That even where there are unbelievers, and even where there are regimes that are against God, God is sovereign. God is over it. God has authority. It's all his. But I must tell you, as you probably already know, the analogy between Ellis and God breaks down quite a bit. Because Ellis doesn't really actually have any of those things. While she claims them, she has no rightful ownership over any of them. And that's where it, fall, that's where it falls short. Because God actually has rightful ownership over everything. Look at the text and what it says. It says, for. And so this is going to tell you the reason. Whenever you see the word for, you should know that's the ground. That's the reason why he does the things he does or why he has the things he does. So the reason that he owns everything and he owns everyone is, the psalmist knows his book of Genesis very well. He says, for he's founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the rivers. Some of you might remember in the book of Genesis and Genesis 1, it talks about God forming the earth. And when God begins to form land, land begins to come up from the seas and come up from the rivers and it divides the waters. And so God is the one who formed the earth. And the psalmist is wanting to say, hey, look back at Genesis. Look at back at how God created the world. And because he is the one who created it, he also is the owner. God is like a master builder or a master craftsman who takes raw materials like wood, cement, stone, brick, clay, and he fashions them all together and makes a house or a building or a structure, and it's his because he made it. But even more impressive about God is God doesn't just need raw materials because God makes raw materials. God is not dependent on wood to make something. 
God is not dependent on cement to make something. No, he said God is the fashioner, the maker, the creator of them all. Wow. Amazing to think of God in such a way. Creator and owner of everything. And you might say at this time, what does that have to deal with excellence? What has that to do with what you're talking about, being an encouragement or a discouragement? This understanding of God sets the groundwork, sets the framework, sets the foundation for where we begin to understand everything in life, everything in the Bible. What the psalmist wants us to understand, what David really wants to get to this time in these two texts is he wants to say there is a creator and a creature distinction. There is a difference between God and humans. There is a difference between the king and his subjects. And because there is a difference, there is a separation. There is a gap. There is something that is setting them apart, where God is not like his people. He is distinct. The way that theologians describe this is they call it God's transcendence. And you can see it in this text. Nobody can do the things they do like God. Nobody can, and even though little kids and even though lots of people like to say, oh, I own so much, no one can say what God says. God owns everything. The psalmist really wants to drive this home. And it's a message that Christians need. It's a message that our whole world needs to get, and it's this. God is God, and you're not. The creator-creature distinction is just that. God is God, and you are not. And when we actually begin to understand this, and if we really get the foundational issue of the creator-creature distinction, the fact that God is God and you are not, and that he is king and we are his subjects, we'll actually be able to follow the logic of the psalmist. We'll also be able to ask the question, just like what the psalmist is going to ask, you just look at verse three, well, who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? Why is the psalmist crying this out? Because he sees a great and mighty king who creates it all and owns it all. And he says, I'm a person. I'm a human. Who gets to go and be with God? And we even learn later on in the scriptures that the distinction and separation between God and man isn't just by virtue of God being creator and man being the created. It's also because of sin. And because sin has wrecked the psalmist's world, he's asking this question, God who is so great, who is owner of it all, creator of it all, how is it that me, a human, a servant of his, gets to come into his presence? And so the psalmist is going to raise the question in verse three. Look at the question. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh? And who shall stand in his holy place? The psalmist, the question that he's raising right here is he's saying, who is going to be able to go into the dwelling place of this owner and creator of all the earth? The reason that he uses the language of hill is because hills and mountains are very important places in the Bible. Some of you might be able to remember a place like Mount Moriah where Abraham took up his son Isaac to sacrifice him or Mount Sinai where Moses met with God at the top of it or we could even think about the city of Jerusalem which is built on hills. Hills and mountains throughout the Bible are a very important place to God and this is his place of dwelling. 
It's essentially the same question that we ask in our modern day when we ask, how do I get to heaven? Or it's a question of who gets to go to heaven? Because heaven is where God's dwelling place is. The mountain is where God's dwelling place is. And that's the question we're asking. Couldn't be a bigger question, right? Now, I must admit, I think I've said this before, if I was to answer that question, I would not answer like the psalmist. If someone came up to me and said, who gets to go up to the hill of the Lord? Or who gets to, or how do I get to go up to the hill of the Lord? I wouldn't say what he says. You know I would say, we gotta believe the gospel. And then I would walk someone through the gospel of, of what that takes to believe, right? Or what that takes to um, believe in. That's not what he says. He gives a very interesting answer that kind of startles us. But what I want to say for Christians especially is when we see this text, we should react in one of two ways. We're about to see something excellent. We should act in a way that's encouraging or we should act encouraged, but also in some ways we should be discouraged. So upon asking the question, couldn't it be a bigger question? Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? The psalmist begins to say this, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive a blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. I told you it wasn't what I would say. But let's just dissect for a moment what he begins to say. He begins to start off with first, this man who gets to go up to the hill of the Lord. So you can just imagine in your mind, maybe you think of Moses or Abraham walking up a mountain to go meet God, and he's beginning to describe what this man is like. It's not Moses or Abraham or anyone else in the Old Testament, but he says this about them. He who has clean hands. Clean hands. The psalmist is saying that this man does the right things. This man in his actions is morally upright. This man does not kill. Sorry, this man does not murder. This man does not steal. This man does not commit adultery and on and on. Everything outside, this man does well. And we'd say, amen. That's good. And most of the time, when we're thinking of Christians and how to be a Christian, or I think this is what most people think about Christian, we would just say, yes, that's good, that's right, that's what a Christian should do. And we would stop there. But the psalmist doesn't. What's interesting about the Bible that's very different from our world is our world is concerned about external righteousness It's concerned about what you do and how you appear to everyone else and protecting your identity or protecting your name, right? The psalmist doesn't care about that. The psalmist is really concerned about who you are at the depths of your soul, in your secret life, when nobody is around, when it's only you and God. That's what he's concerned about. Listen to what he says. He says, and a pure heart. I've talked about the Hebrew word for heart. It literally translates to the word bowels. And what it means is it means the inner person. It means really the motivation chamber of your soul. It means at the very heart of who you are. When the Hebrew is trying to use the word heart, he's just trying to say at the very center of you. And he's trying to say the person who ascends the hill of the Lord is not someone who just has clean heart, hands and does the right thing. No, it's someone who has a pure motivation. It's not just someone who doesn't murder. It's someone also who doesn't hate his brother. It's not someone who just doesn't commit adultery. It's someone who doesn't lust. It's not just someone who doesn't steal. It's someone who doesn't covet. 
The psalmist and the Bible over and over again, they want to say morality externally, we're not concerned about that. Yeah, we're concerned about it, but that's not the fundamental issue. The fundamental issue is what's on the inside. What's at the motivation? If we were to open up the heart, what would we see in there? Would we see, yeah, everybody looks good on the outside and everybody can come to church and look just the same, but inside, it's wickedness. It's different. Would we see that? I think this is pointing us to what God's concern is. God's concern is who you are, not just what you do. Who you are on the inside. This man, not just that he has clean hands and a pure heart, he also does not lift up his soul to what is false. And what I think this means is that he does not worship false gods. This man has a proper attention to the truth, has a proper attention to God. He does not waver in worshiping other things. Instead, he's focused on God. And then the last thing that it says, and does not swear deceitfully. Quickly, what that means is that this man does not make a promise while intending to break the promise. This man does not say he's going to do something with no intention to doing this. So how is this man pure? How is this man right? Well, he is morally excellent in his action, his thoughts, his promises, but also in his worship. He worships God. And in verse five, you can see the blessing that he gets. And he's even considered righteous by God. Interestingly, because of what he does. Wow. What a man. What an excellent man. Don't get any better does the right thing, has the right motives, makes the right promises, keeps the right promises, doesn't worship another God. And as we see this man who can ascend the hill of the Lord and dwell in his dwelling place, because this is what it takes to get into the dwelling place, we should be first encouraged, if you're a Christian. What I mean by this is, when you see this man, you should be encouraged because Christians, as Jesus talks about in Matthew 5, are encouraged to hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're supposed to hunger and thirst for righteousness because we will be satisfied by it. Brother and sister, if you are a Christian, you should hear these things and not first feel condemned, but you should first see these are excellent things. I want these things in my life. I want to follow after these things. I want to do the things he does, and I want to have a motivation like he does. I want to have a pure heart. And this is a good test for you if you're a Christian. Do you want these things? Do you want these things in your life? Because a true Christian, as Jesus teaches, blessed is he who hungers and thirsts righteousness, will say, that man, I want to be like him. Not out of external religion or Pharisaism or legalism, but just to say righteousness is good. And that's something that changes in the heart. I can think about something that I see that's excellent and that we've already seen in this room today that leads me um, to do better. Is when I see Adam and Ashley come up here and they lead worship, they do it in an excellent way. And many of you are blessed because of it. And it even leads you to worship in probably a better way, right? Because of their excellence, it leads you to worship. It leads you to do something better. And the same as Christians. If we actually see this man, we should say, I want that. I want to get that. But the difficulty of this is always, how do we get there? 
practically. Because it's not just I can tell you, well, stop doing this, start doing this. It's rather what we need is we need really a heart transfiguration. We need a heart transplant, a change of heart. Um, And there's really two ways this happens. Let me say first, if you're not a believer in here, you need to call upon the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need the new birth. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. And maybe if you're saying, I don't desire any of this righteousness, I don't desire to have a pure heart, I don't care what my motivation is, I just want to look good on the outside, it might be because you don't know the gospel. You need that first. But let's say you are a Christian, and you're saying, my heart still needs to be renewed, I still got mixed motivations, I still got problems, which I get. I'm there. I have mixed motivations, core issues all the time, sin that's dwelling within me, evil thoughts all the time. How do we begin to renew the mind? Well, the psalmist is actually very helpful in this. In Psalm 1, verses 1 through 2, David writes, it's the same person, he says, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor sits in the seat of sinners, nor stands in the place of scoffers, but his delight, notice this, he does not do all those sins because what? His delight is in the law of Yahweh. And on his law he meditates day and night. I have found this over and over again to be true in my life. That the closer I come to Scripture, the more I become like the blessed man of Psalm 1 who meditates upon God's Word, who actually memorizes it, who begins to understand it, the more I actually begin to love it. The more that his Scripture actually begins to work within me and cleanse my heart and cleanse my motivation to where now I don't want the things I used to want. But instead I want new things. I want things of righteousness. And so application for us, long run, actually made it really easy for you this week. Um, Next to the bulletins up here, there's a little scripture memory card. It has Psalm 1, 1 through 2, what I just quoted. Blessed is the man, not in counsel of the wicked, stands in the seat of sinners, stands in the way of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh. Great psalm. And one of the ways that we begin to mend our hearts that the Lord uses his scripture to mend our heart is through meditating and memorizing scripture. And so I want to encourage you this week to take this psalm, to take this card, and to memorize it, to meditate upon it. Maybe put it in your car. Maybe put it in your work cubicle. Maybe put it wherever it is that you're going to be throughout the week and put it as a constant reminder that I'm going to think about this word, that I'm going to memorize it. And I believe that as you begin to actually memorize it, and actually begin to meditate upon it, that God's word will actually begin to do what the psalmist says it will. It will make the law of Yahweh a delight. I remember when I was first a Christian, I loved Jesus and I was really thankful for Jesus. I hated reading though. I hated reading the Bible. But did you hear, like that didn't match up with Psalm 1, 1 through 2. How did that change? I had to interact with the word. I had to meditate. I had to memorize. I had to come to it constantly over and over again to be refined. And brothers and sisters, if we want to be like this blessed man, and I'm going to tell you how we're going to fall short of this blessed man eventually. If we want to be like this blessed man, we need to meditate on the word of God. We need to have it be our delight. Not a burden, but a delight. And so this man should be an encouragement, something we should pursue. But while this man is an encouragement, it can also be a discouragement to us. 
Because as we look at this man, and I must attest to this myself, as I look at this man and I hear about his attributes and his character and his qualities, I must first say, that's not me. And I imagine if I went around the room and I asked each and every one of you, hey, do you got clean hands, pure heart, never take a bribe or never make a promise unright or never worship an idol, on and on we go down the, idol, we go down the list of attributes of this man? If you're honest, you would say, yeah, that's not me either. And if you say it is, just if you have a spouse, just ask your spouse. <laughs> or just ask the person you're closest with if you don't have a spouse. And they'll tell you, no, it's not. No, it's not. Nobody matches this man. No one. <laughs> and what this man shows us, and it kind of discourages us in a way, because it shows us we're not excellent. I told you about how Adam and Ashley, when they come up here, I love it that they come and they lead so excellently. And they do a great job and it encourages me to worship. But um, I'm glad you guys do what you do. But it also discourages me. Because I, I'm reminded every week, I should not lead worship. Praise the Lord, right? Excellent di- excellence discourages us. And if we actually look at this man's morality, how perfect he is, it will actually show us that we fall short every time. It will actually teach us what the scripture teaches. No one is righteous. No one is good. No one seeks after God. Nobody gets to do what this guy does. Pure in heart, holy, perfect, blameless. And this is not just a problem for us. It's a problem throughout all the scriptures. If we examine the bigwigs, the heroes of the Bible, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Moses to David to Joshua, on and on, whoever you want to analyze, they all got this issue. Nobody actually gets to do the things this guy does. Nobody can. Everybody falls short. Everybody fails. But this is the guy who actually enters the Lord's presence. I remember one time when I was involved with FCA, I was down at Central High School, and I was talking with a group of high school football players about this text, and I asked them first, I said, who wants to go to heaven? Raise your hand. They all raised their hand, of course, you know, maybe a few of them didn't, you know, but the majority of them raised their hand, right? And I said, all right, let's see what it takes to get to heaven. Clean hands, pure heart, does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. And as they're having their hand raised, I just said, all right, if any of you guys matches this standard, lower your hand. And as they began to just think about it, I just lower, 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 and there's no hand standing anymore. And if we did the same thing in this room, it would be the exact same result. And then one of the students, bold student, said, are you telling me no one goes to heaven? That's what it sounds like, doesn't it? But thank goodness the psalm doesn't keep going. I mean, sorry, thank goodness the psalm keeps going. It doesn't actually end with you. It actually ends with someone much greater than you. Look at verse 7. It says, lift up your heads, O gates. Just stop there for a moment. We'll come to the rest of the text. It's as if the psalmist is personifying the gates of Jerusalem, which would be letting in people to go and visit God in his temple, in his sanctuary. And it's as if, as he personifies the gates, he's saying, look around. There's no human beings on the ground who can actually obtain this standard, who can actually uphold this righteousness. Instead, what you have to do is you actually have to look up. Because this man, 
He's not coming from men. He's not coming from humans. He's coming from somewhere else. Listen to where this mighty king comes from. Start again in verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? Listen to his name. Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. The gates of Jerusalem personified to look for a savior, to look for a Messiah. Can't see anyone among men who can save. And we can't see anyone here in this room who can save themselves. Brothers and sisters, none of us are here like the man who is blameless and without sin, even in motivation. So we need someone who is not like us. And the gates look up to one who is the king of glory. And who is the king of glory? It's Yahweh. It's God. The one who can rescue us. The one who come and wage war against sin. And even when you listen to that language of that text, it's battle language. It's warfare language. It says, come strong and mighty, mighty in battle. And then it says Yahweh of hosts, which just means Yahweh of armies. Yahweh God comes to make war with sin and to defeat sin and show us we can't rescue ourselves. None of us are going to ever rescue ourselves. The only one who can actually approach the throne of God, interestingly, is not actually just man. It's this one, Yahweh God. But he also who has clean hands and a pure heart. The person of verses 3 through 5 and 7 through 10 are the same. It's amazing. That the one who gets to ascend the hill, pure hands, clean heart. The one who gets to come into the gates of Jerusalem, to go to Jerusalem, it's God. Psalmist David wants to say the only one who can rescue you is God. And while the text, you know, it doesn't quite just draw out and say, it's Jesus. No, it doesn't do that. It gives us a hint. It gives us a wink and says, the only one who can actually save you is one who is perfect, holy, blameless, without sin, never did anything wrong, never even a wrong intention. And the only one who can do that even is God who can wage war against sin and defeat sin. If you were someone in here and you were hearing the whole pure heart, clean hands, and you're thinking, I don't really desire that. I like looking externally righteous, but inside, I don't really want that. I invite you to trust in the one that this psalm is about, and that's Jesus. And as you trust in Jesus, he will begin to change your heart. He will give what the New Testament calls a new birth, make you a new creation where you'll have a new desire for new things. For those of us who do know the Lord, I encourage us. We see this excellence, and we want it. Yes, we see we don't match it. We fall short, of course. But we want to be pursuing it. We want to be encouraged. And in verse 6, didn't mention this verse before. 
But it's interesting, in verse 6 it says, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Those who seek God are going to be blessed by this one who's perfect. Those who seek God are going to be blessed by the king who comes into his gates. The generation will be blessed. I hope that we're that generation. And so the excellent one, you should be encouraged by him, but also be discouraged in a way. But it's in that discouragement that we actually have great hope. Because we realize, yeah, we're not the Savior. Only the King of glory, Yahweh of hosts, is the Savior. Let's pray.